RugbyRenegade.com, the number one online strength and conditioning program for rugby. Are you ready to get bigger, stronger, fitter, and faster and dominate your opposition? Welcome to the Rugby Renegade Podcast, where we build machines. Today's episode is sponsored by Optimum Nutrition. To get a 40% discount across their entire batch-tested range, use the code RENEGADE40 at www.onacademy.co.uk forward slash elite portal. And of course, members of the Rugby Renegade online subscription program get an exclusive 50% discount plus free access to the Optimum Nutrition online nutrition course. Yes, welcome back to episode 73 of the Rugby Renegade podcast. My name is Jamie Bain and today I interview John Dams of Kitman Labs and formerly of... Uh, Harlequins, Waratahs, Leicester and Wellington so um, tons of experience both north and south hemispheres um, and some insight into kind of sports science with his work with Kitman Labs now so um, tons of good topics um, covered so give it a listen and let us know what you think. Hi John welcome to the Rugby Renegade podcast uh, great to have you on so let's start by telling us a bit about your background how you got into strength and conditioning and who you've worked with. Yeah, it's a bit of a long story, really. Um, I kind of started a long time ago, kind of uh, mid-90s. So I was in my last few years of university, and uh, a friend of mine I played rugby with who was uh, an aspiring SNC coach, he needed um, he needed money for a visa to head to the UK. So he was selling a lot of his equipment um, in, in Dunedin, and... He said, look, do you, do you want to buy some of my gear? And I'm like, well, I was pretty broke at the time. I had no money. I was like, all right, I'll, I'll give it to you for like 50 bucks. So that was like medicine balls, cones, um, harnesses, ladders, with a plyo board, and which was more equipment than anyone else had, you know, in, in my industry uh, or my year at university. And I'm like, I have no idea what to do with this. And he's like, okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll show you what to do. It kind of came from there. So... I played with this guy, I had a few beers with him, and, and he pretty much taught me some really good foundational work around movement, medicine ball work, and just kind of how to coach. And we hadn't really experienced that. I was, I was third year into a four-year degree. And it kind of like, it kind of slung shot me into a, into a space where no one else was. And I started training some of my teammates, friends, and it kind of escalated from there. And I, I, I did some work in Dunedin where I went to university, University of Otago. Um, for a couple of years, and then I moved to Wellington. You know, I wanted to get to the big smoke and and do some work um, with some you know some real rugby players. So I started working at a gym, kind of half and half PTing and doing some voluntary work with some of the development teams uh, in Wellington, um, and which was which was fantastic. It was you know I actually started to earn some money and I got some good exposure to some really good great coaching and um, I kind of cut my teeth there. You know, like working for free is hard. Um, so after kind of 18 months, a couple of years, I got offered a job with Wellington Rugby, which was fantastic. Um, worked out, looked after their academy program and their development team there um, and was there for probably 18 months, two years. Um, and I guess that I was pretty aspirational. I, I'd, I wanted to do do big things. And the guy who was ahead of me, Andrew Beardmore, who's still a good friend of mine, he wasn't going anywhere. The jobs are fairly limited. So... I got an offer from a guy um, who was a good friend at university who'd been and done some work at Leicester. He was working with Pete Atkinson there um, as an assistant, and he was leaving. 
and he said, "Look, the guys are after a coach. Do you, do you want to put your name forward?" And I was like, "Yeah, that sounds that sounds like a great idea." You know? um, and literally the day after that phone call, I got a call from a guy named Darren Grukoff who said, "Look, would you like to come and move to Leicester?" And I was like, "Right, that sounds great." So when when do you want me? And he says, "Well, can you come for an interview this weekend?" This is on like a Wednesday. I was like, um, yeah. So I jumped on a plane and I got to the UK for 24 hours, um, drove up to Leicester, met with Darren and saw the facility and I was like, this is fantastic. Um, briefly spoke about a contract, flew back and they offered me a contract and yeah, Bob's your uncle. And it was like, I went straight into a, one of the biggest professional teams in Europe um, and I did it literally in the space of two weeks. Um, I went from a, a job, which was a straight a job, which was um, which was uh, a great job. You know, I had some great people, some great um, a great boss, and Andrew Beardmore. But I was I wanted to, to kind of develop myself further, and this was an absolute perfect opportunity. You know, the first day I walked in and they showed me ropes, and there's. You know, fresh off the 2003 World Cup, there's Martin Johnson, Neil Back, you know, um, Roundtree, kind of like, right, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing it. So I was there for um, I was there for five years, and in the first year, um, I was with Darren and another performance manager called Phil Mack, and I learned a lot from those guys. And but there was, a, you know, there's a few. I mean, professional sports tough, you know. And there were a few arguments and a few issues going on with some of the management, and all of a sudden, you know, both of them have left, and I was kind of left in charge. And Pat Howard um, was the coach at the time, and you know, I'm a young coach, I'm 26, 27 years old. You know, I remember I was out in the field doing some running, <laughs> weirdly enough, doing some exercise. And Patty walked on the field and said, Damsey, um, I just sacked one of the coaches, uh, you're in charge. And I was like, what? So I walked into the club, 18 months later, I'm in charge of one of the biggest teams in Europe, and I'm like, what is going on? My interns at the time, well, not my interns, but one of the interns at the time was Ollie Richardson. So he he had just started there. So I remember me and Ollie going out for a beer and going, what are we going to (laughs) do? So kind of crazy, we're kind of forced into this position where we get to really step up. And probably those, those six, it was like nine months before they employed someone uh, as, as my boss were some of the, the, the best months because we really learned we learned quickly about what to do and what not to do um, what they did is they employed uh, Craig White who most people will probably know um, yeah. who was a big coach in the you know, late 90s early 2000s um, and he came in uh, and was my boss and worked with him for two years and he really taught me how to build a, an SNC team you know we had a fantastic group of coaches there we had Craig myself Ollie we had Paddy Mortimer who was a wizard of the academy we had Alex Martin who was there we had Chris Barrett who now works in rugby league yeah. oh, but, so we had a really good team uh, of coaches uh, we, we were fairly successful you know, we missed out on, on a number of we won a couple of trophies and we missed out on on a, on a big trophy in um, the European Cup uh, against Wasps um, and then Craig left the year, uh, year after Paddy left the head coach um, they brought in a head coach called Marcelo Lafreda who had some decent success um, with um, Argentina at the World Cup he'd come in um, he was just a different coach 
given head coach to, to Paddy. Um, it was very different in the way he did things. Um, they also said Craig left, and they decided they they wanted to get a senior a senior coach in there, which I was I was pretty disappointed about. You know, I I had some time in charge, and then Craig came in, and they brought in a guy named Dean Benton. So, which is great. Yeah, Dean was a, he was a great coach, had experience with the Broncos. But I, as I mentioned earlier, I was pretty aspirational. So I I lucky enough to offer a job down at Harlequins with Dan Richards. Which is fantastic. Um, so I spent some time with, you know, two or three years with Dean before um, before Bloodgate, which kind of ended his stint at um, at um, And I was lucky to spend a decent amount of time with John Jackson, who was kind of the head coach there for a while. And then Connor O'Shea came as a regular rugby and kind of spiraled into, the, you know, four or five years of success with those guys. Um, great bunch of coaches still really close with now uh, and then you know I was there ongoing for it was what 19 years and then got offered a job with an old Easter friend in, in the Waratahs in Sydney and moved the family over here and you know spent two or three two two and a half years in the Waratahs in, in difficult conditions probably the hardest two years of my career uh, and then I parted ways with them in 2017 2017 um, and since then, I've, I've did some relearning as a developmental coach. I drove a garbage truck, and now I'm a performance scientist for Man Labs. So that's my history. <laughs> oh no, there's tons of uh, just the kind of list of coaches you work with. You know, rugby and uh, S and C wise, there's, there's tons I, I can um, ideas coming to my head of things I can ask you. But I, I'm going to open with it's, it's never an easy question to answer. Um, but what's your your S and C philosophy in a nutshell? I've, I've been asked that a lot, a lot of times, and you know, I, I don't like the metaphor in a nutshell because, as a, a nutshell, it's closed. It's, it's not very permeable. I think, I guess, my philosophy has probably changed and modified through my experiences um, and my and my development as a human, human being, as an adult, and uh, as a coach. So, what I'll probably do is talk you through my changing philosophies and where I probably sit now, um, and so. My philosophy as a young coach um, out of university and into working with Wellington was all about developing hard-working athletes, so athletes who turned up on time, who worked hard. The philosophy in New Zealand rugby at the time, and probably still is, is that you wanted a really fit, hard-working group of players. So we tried to instill that type of that type of um, ethos into what was going on with our players. So I left left Wellington, uh, moved to moved to Leicester, as I mentioned, and then the philosophy there was a little bit different. Where I walked in, and you know, I can remember doing a, a warm up in the early first few games I was there. I was I was, you know, I was, I was working as an assistant on the sideline, doing a warm up, and what we used to do in Wellington was a bit of skill games, bit of bit of bit of touch on the sideline. And I remember suggesting to Graham Rounds, you know, oh, come on, Greg, we'll play have a bit of touch. He turned to me, literally, anger in his eyes, and said, "Fucking touch! Are you kidding me?" And I was like, "Uh." uh. So my philosophies, kind of, from that moment, had to change in terms of how I how I approached my players and what I did. You know, Paddy Paddy Howard had a really strong philosophy in terms of what he wanted what he wanted as an athlete. We had a, we had a huge pack. We had a dominant pack, and um, they wanted big, strong athletes. And I saw change and you know uh, I guess a hard working running based team to a, a very much a strength focused team 
And when, when Craig came in, he kind of topped that off. He, he spent a number of number of weeks at um, the, the Larry Simmons um, from this side. So he brought those types of philosophies to, to Leicester. Um, you know, it was a period where we were, we, yeah, we were fully conjugate and in our approach. We developed some really big, strong athletes. And we had the pack and the, and the direction from the head coach. Um, and then, you know, I took that approach into Harlequins in the first few years where I saw a need with, a, with a, I guess, a young and developing pack which is putting together where strength was a, was a priority. You know, we then, and then developed the team performance only at points with Garrett Adamson, who was there at the time. Um, and we started up our own philosophies around strength and movement. And we made some errors. We made some errors around how we approach strength. And we bring these players to a point where um, you know, they, were, they had really good strength levels. And it was kind of like, okay, well, where do we move this program? So for many years, and it, it moved to a more of a movement-focused program, but with, with a caveat that, that you know strength was still a, an absolute foundation but it was it was around how can we make these players move as effectively as efficiently as possible um, and then so we brought in a couple of people from the OES to do some upskilling around the movement which was fantastic it was uh, Ralph Brandon and Pete Atkinson came in and did some work with us there and then we kind of rolled moved forward from there and now the, the movement program at Quinn's is just unbelievable got um Coach Wild there, James Wild, who does, does some amazing things. All the coach, all the coaches there are, are, are fantastic movement coaches in their own right. Um, and then I moved to the Waratahs, and, which was again different in that approach, where you move from the Northern Hemisphere, where sh- the strength and the, the, the attitude towards training was was very different towards the athletes I inherited at the Waratahs, where I can remember sitting in one of the early meetings with one of the senior forwards, senior player at the Waratahs, and his first comment to me was, oh, I don't really do s and I don't, I don't do the gym, and I was kind of like, right. So they were very different athletes in terms of the way they approach things. Uh, I was working with a coach there called uh, Jordan Troster, who has just um, got a job with the University of Oregon, uh, who was a fantastic movement coach, um, had been involved with Sparta, SOS, some fantastic work with them, mainly based around movement. And some of the issues I had at, at the Waratahs were more around how I could communicate my ideas with my, my players. Um, and from that, I, I, I did some, in, some learning education and communication and how to best communicate with my players and how to best relate to my players. So, kind of long story is I, I transitioned through this work hard, get strong, move well to this program where it's all about how can I really engage and communicate with these athletes. So, it kind of my philosophy moved full circle. You know, I, I wouldn't say I removed the energy to work hard or the need to work hard or the need to be strong or the need to move well, but it probably changed as I grew as a coach and my experience as a coach. So, where I sit now is. I believe your ability to communicate information, communicate ideas to athletes is probably one of the more important skills you need as a as a coach. Um, and one, you know, the skills I had now, if I had them when I was at Quinns and Leicester, I think I would be a better coach. Um, but I, I I wouldn't have got to where I am without going through the, the stages I had um, with those teams. 
Yeah, I, th- I think another long winded answer <laughs> no, that's good. No, I, th- I think it, it just shows that I guess the important message is your philosophy has to adapt to your environment and, and you know by through, being through those different environments you, you've added to it and improved it over the years um, and it, it kind of ties in nice to my next question I just want to go back and, and some of the stuff you said about you know in, in the early days of instilling that hard work uh, mentality what, what kind of approaches did you use to kind of get that because obviously that's again you said that's kind of like the foundation and you can add on to that I mean I was working with um, the young uh, young academy group in Wellington at the time and these are the likes of um, these New Zealand players you may or may not know so that's Tamari Ellison Jimmy Gopith you probably know Corey Jang these are the players who are coming through the academy at the time Pity Weepu and you know for me, it was making sure they turn up on time, that they get prepared, and they work hard. And in terms of motivating them to work hard, wasn't 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 too difficult because they had a really strong we had a strong academy program, and they had a, a clear pathway through to New Zealand age grades, and then into Super Rugby, and then you know, some to the All Blacks and some uh, abroad. So the my job was to make sure that they. They did what was required. They turned up on time, and they and they worked. They they worked as hard as they could. Um, you know, looking back at some of the things that I did with those players at the time, would I, would I change that now? Absolutely. But at the time, it's you know, I, I it was my philosophy. It was my philosophy around how I wanted to prepare them and how I wanted to show up as a coach, and I, I think it worked. At that time. Yeah, well, definitely some of the, the names of the players you mentioned there have obviously gone on to be very successful. And I guess it's nice for you from a career perspective to look back and, and know that you've you've had a hand in that. Um, and as I said, you kind of lined up my, my next question in terms of being in those different environments and obviously, you know, starting out in, in New Zealand, spending a, a long period of time in the UK and then and then going back to the Waratahs. Um, what's your kind of view on rugby S&C in the Northern Hemisphere? And obviously, I guess the game's slightly different in the way we approach it. So there's that side of it. Um, but what's your comparison, having been in both environments? There, there is a definite uh, contrast in philosophies and approaches of players. You know, I wouldn't say it's absolute, but you know, it's the rule where the majority of professional rugby players in the Northern Hemisphere would probably spend a lot more time on their physical preparation compared to the majority of the players in in the Southern Hemisphere. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that there aren't any players that I work with in the Waratahs who didn't have a strong you know, perspective of how they want to prepare and how physical they wanted to be. And similarly in England, there were some players who, who loved to avoid Doing the, the hard work in the gym and on, on the field, but as a as a rule, most players really bought into the ongoing physical development um, as an athlete. And I think that's shaped by just the type of season, the the, the type of rugby that's played. Um, you know, I compare players like um, like Chris Robshaw. I mean, he was an absolute machine in terms of turning up, working hard, putting weight on doing what he could um, every day. And, you know, he played how many games he played a year. You know, do that over 10-plus years. That's a hell of a lot of work. 
And then you factor in a different perspective with where the Australians were and New Zealanders, where typically there's, they're all about getting the ball in their hand. How can they improve their ability to, to execute technically or tactically? So it's different. And I think that was also based on the type of seasons that were here, the weather. You know, It's much easier to, to or want to get outside when it's 27 degrees, blue sky, you know, compared to you know, middle of February where it's like dark, dank, and you just go, oh, well, I don't really want to go outside and do an extra half an hour of school work. I'd rather get inside and do a bit more uh, physical work, but it complemented. Because, you know, these guys needed that foundation of strength to get them through the year. You know, if you didn't do the work in, you know, July, September, and even uh, July, August, September, sometimes into October, you, it, really, it really affected you come finals time, which was, you know, what, March... April, May. So it's a different approach, but it was, you know, I wouldn't say one's better than the other, just just different. Yeah. Again, it goes back to your, your previous answer that it's it's the environment you're in and, and the demands of, like, say, whatever it's the, the weather, the climate, or um, or the style of play. Um, yeah. And, and you, you mentioned earlier about, you know, obviously strength being so important for that foundation. Um, but how, how do you, it ties in again nicely with this, with that answer is that how do you ensure that players are getting stronger? to improve their sport and not just kind of chasing numbers? Um, I guess it comes down to 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 have the right meaning and having, as, as a coach, been able to provide them with the right information to give them meaning to, to train. Um, you know, in the, and I guess in the, the olden days, the, when, and as in my early days as a coach, I relied on my relationship with a player to... I'd say coerce, but to motivate a player into a certain way of training. As I developed as a coach and as sports science and performance science improved, you needed information. You needed evidence-based uh, approach to, to talk to a player around why they're doing what they're doing. So to ensure players are getting stronger and not just chasing numbers, it's given them a reason. It's given them meaning. This is, this is what's how you communicate with the message, but this is the information I have. We both have the common goal of wanting to, to win, succeed, achieve. This is where my information is telling me you need to go as a player. Okay, right. If that information is telling me that you only need to be the strong or be able to press this much, then fine. But it's giving them a really clear understanding of the reason why they're doing what they're doing. And it comes from ideally giving them a higher meaning in terms of why they're doing what they're doing yeah it's a great great answer it's, it's getting that buy-in from them isn't it yeah and it, and it comes you know, it, it just doesn't just come from you it, you know it comes from the, your whole management team and one thing that um connor and john kingston did really really well is they they set that they set that platform in a, in a really strong way in terms of well, this is this is what we want as a team what are you going to do to get there? You know, they they provided a strong meaning to to a, to a young team who wanted to be successful. We had hugely ambitious players there. You know, it, you know, when I first arrived at Queens, Danny Kerr was young. We had Jordan Turner Hall was young. We had Ugo who was still kind of early in his career. Mike Brown, Chris Robshaw. You know, we had these young players who were so motivated. They were, you know, I wouldn't say easily guided, but you know, provide them a platform to work hard and they were successful. 
Yeah. Uh, now, this next question is one we ask all the guests on the podcast, and it's what do you think is the biggest mistake rugby players make when it comes to strength and conditioning? Oh, biggest mistake. I mean, probably learnt this in my latter years um, was around maybe investing in themselves, around, mainly around recovery and regeneration. But the biggest mistake when it comes to strength and conditioning, I think, is to expect that every every one of us, every one of the coaching staff has all the answers. You know, like I remember the first time someone told me that they had paid for a therapist to come in and do some work or they were doing some extra work with someone else. And I, I took it as a bit of a, you know, a bit of a slap to my own ego around, well, why are they, why are they going somewhere else? Is it, is it, is it, are they developing me as a coach? But I think as a professional player to, to gain longevity in the league, you need to invest in yourself as a player. And I think primarily in the, in the recovery process, you know, manual therapy, you know, the ability to talk to someone outside outside of the sport, outside of the game, to help you get through the stresses you deal with day to day. So, investing in physical physical recovery, mental recovery. But you know, when you fork out, you know, four hundred quid for a therapist, you know, four or five times a month, that that shows commitment, and you know, it also is also aiding you in terms of getting back on the pitch. But it's investing in your in yourself. Um, so players who expect it uh, to be given everything from their teams and their clubs, um, but, you know, and most do, and, and I would say 99% of all premiership teams in, in the UK provide an amazing service these days. But I still expect players, when it comes to their own physical preparation, need to take ownership and invest in, in, in whatever they think they need to do to be the best. Yeah, I think it's interesting you said about the, um, you know, talking to other people outside of the rugby environment as well, um, because I guess the free time that rugby players get, they often spend with other rugby players, and that's that's all they talk about is rugby. But I think some clubs have been quite good at helping uh, players sort of plan for their careers post rugby, which has given them that outlet yeah. outside of it. And and there's so many things outside of rugby that you can take and. And, and add to to rugby. Um, that's one thing through, you know, through being outside of rugby for a short period, being involved in business and things like that. The, the amount of stuff out there in the world that we can take is huge. But we're kind of always in that rugby bubble, so I think, yeah, it's definitely good to have a good outlet and yeah, in, invest in in yourself yeah. and your body. Yeah, and there's some great people doing, especially in. And these are friends of mine who, you know, Leon Lloyd is cheering up, switch the play. In the UK, and they do some amazing things in helping players transition um, out of sport um, into into business, into life. Uh, John Kingston's got a fledgling company in terms of helping people transition out of sport into business, keeping them. You know, he's taking all the all the you know the decade, couple of decades of knowledge he has around preparing players and helping them. Well, one succeed on the field, but giving them a, a path outside when they finish. But some of the work that I did when I left was around understanding how people how people do themselves. So how, how, do, how do people do people? And one of those processes is, is you learn to talk to people. And you, you, know, you, you, you well, Take it back a step. You learn to do yourself. You learn what makes you tick. You learn your flaws and how to help yourself. And part of that is talking. And talking can be very cathartic. It can be very, um, 
it's an important part of, of uh, I guess, the mental health process, being able to talk to someone about what's going on, you know, like in good and bad. Um, and, you know, and this has been recognised now. People and athletes have the opportunity to, to speak to people outside. But I, I would recommend, I would recommend, you know, coaches and players, again, investing in, in resources to better do that, you know, even in the good times, to be able to say, well, this is what I'm doing, get a different perspective. Or, you know, a, a psych's job is to is to offer a really unique perspective on what they hear and what they see, you know, putting their own bias aside in order to facilitate the growth of the, the, the people they're talking to. So, so I, you know, I would, I love that service, you know, the ability to help someone through a really difficult time. And yeah, I'm glad to see people doing that now. Yeah, definitely. Uh, now, tell us a bit about your, your work, or tell us about Kitman Labs and, and the work you're doing there. Yeah, Kitman, I've been with Kitman Labs just over two years, and it's flown by. And, um, it's, you know, I've, in a weird way, and this is, I have got my Kitman hat off a little bit here, and, you know, I've used many a system, many a, a, a management system uh, through my career, um, to, and I had difficulty with, with them all. Um, and it took a couple of conversations with Stevie Smith around what they wanted to do and where their vision was as a company, and I was like, this actually sounds pretty good. And, and then I got to understand, you know, what he'd been through, what the rest of the company had been through, what his vision was for the company, and it's been a fantastic, you know, 18 months, two years with that company. Um, and we're doing some really cool things, and we're a company of ex-professionals, which is really, really cool. The environment is really smart. We've got some really smart people. Um, you know, we call ourselves performance scientists these days. We've got Darcy Norman, uh, Brian Bernstein, Andy Shell, myself, um, and we talk really cool shit every every week. Um, and what we do now is we we help we we're taking experience and helping teams facilitate being the best they can. So we are we are doing. Software is amazing, and it's you know there's always going to be potential issues with software, but the way the company is going, it's it's going to get better and better. And but the process we go through in terms of how we help a team is what brought me into the company, in terms of how we take it from a more of a, um, a hard objective company to a more of a, a subjective to really look to understand what a team's going through look to engage with coaches, help them solve their problems um, and work with them because we, we speak the same language. So I'm, I love the company I work for. It's um, been a great place. It's a, I get to talk performance every day. Um, I don't quite get the highs and lows you do with a sports team, you know, the wins and the losses, but you get some pretty good moments when you, you know, when you collaborate with some really smart people and yeah, it's, it's been a, uh, a great kind of two years since I've left sports. So. Yeah, sounds cool. And, and and what do you see kind of the future of, of the kind of monitoring analytics side of, of sport? How do, you, how do you see that developing and, you know, within Kitman? Uh, yeah, this is kind of, I mean, this is the, one of the reasons why I, again, when I spoke to Stephen about coming on board, it was all the information that we generate facilitates a decision. All the information that we have and the, and, and the data you collect and the analysis teams run facilitates a decision. And that involves a human. 
so what we what what we do, and what I'm what I see the, the future of how analytics works, is just facilitating really good decisions, and that comes down to having really smart questions, right? But the idea is that we are supercharging, and this is my words, supercharging a coach's ability to make really smart decisions. So, you know, some people, some coaches, and some you know players get a little bit maybe negative frame towards data and analytics without potentially understanding the absolute benefit of how it can help you in your decision making around what you do and how you do it with your athletes and your team. So the future is absolutely supercharging a coach's development, the decision making around what they do with players. And as things get quicker, as analysis gets more readily available, as the software improves, those decisions are made quicker. You know, the, the time between understanding, you know, how do I how do I load these players? How do I load this individual? It might take you, I don't know, four or five months, six months. Could take you. You can answer these questions in a heartbeat. So it's just improving the way coaches and players can make decisions on what, what they do. That's where I see the future. Yeah, that's interesting. And I guess it, you know that <clears throat> Kim Manlab's an ideal person in having yourself because you've been in that that situation at, at Quinns and, and Leicester where and Waratahs where you need to be making those decisions and you, and you'll know what kind of data you need and 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 the the issues you have so you can kind of almost future proof it. I guess. Yeah, I mean, part of the the thing about being involved in sports so long is you make so many you mess up. You make you make errors. <laughs> like oh you know some of the decisions you make when I look back you're like Jesus how did I what did I, what did I do that so you learn by your mistakes so what we can offer is just perspective a perspective of look I, I can I've, I've stood in your shoes I've, I've looked through your, your eyes and I've made some really dumb choices but what I've done from those choices is, is learn from them and by me learning from them I can help you not make the same decisions and, and fast track your learning and ideally fast track a team into being successful yeah yeah cool now this next question is again one we ask all the guests on the podcast and it's what advice would you give to an upcoming strength coach what advice would I when I for me it'd be a relationship first so I so I'm pretty proud of the teams I like once I put together, they, they, they worked extremely hard to get where they are, but I always wanted to understand the person first and the people who I enjoyed working with who were employed and, and who got jobs with the, with the players I engaged with and was are still friends with now. So I think being able to relate and talk to someone is, is a really interesting skill. So the advice would be talk to as many people as you can, but think about relationship first you know, context second. Um, I'd also understand as a young coach, you know, I, I left and I was ambitious. I left um, a job, a girlfriend in, in Wellington at a heartbeat to get the opportunity I needed. And there's, there's a lot of luck in that. There was luck in, in giving the opportunity back when I was a what, 18, 19 year old kid. So identify, identify those opportunities and take them. You know, there, there is sacrifice involved. Um, but you know, yeah. When an opportunity arises, take it. But relationship first. So get to know who you. You know, spend some time 
if you want to go somewhere, get involved with the coach, give him a call. Like, he might answer the first time. He might answer the second time, but he'll probably answer the third time and he'll probably talk to you because you've called three times. Um, you know, I, I like that about people who are determined. Um, I always have a good friend of mine, uh, Jake Gallagher, who, who, who's uh, works in racing and was working, worked in Formula One. He's a very good friend of mine. And the first, <laughs> first two times he applied for the internship, I said, no, sorry, mate. But we laugh about it now because you know it, he came back and was like, man, this guy wants to do, wants to do this. And, and he's now a really successful coach. So you know, don't give up, um, but understand. You know, sometimes it is it is luck, but you make your own luck sometimes. Yeah, definitely. And, and on that same note, for in terms of young coaches or developing coaches, are there any books or resources you'd recommend? Um, probably the non. In a weird way, the non-SNC books is the books which aren't more about the content. They're about um, developing as a human. Um, books around how to how to help yourself. Um, you know, this is an advice that I followed as a young coach. But looking back, I, I wish I, you know, I listened to people and and read the books that they they showed me. Um, you know, I was delving into more more content-based books um but yeah it's outside of your of your of your uh, oh, you clearly need a base understanding of what you're doing but learn different skills learn you know learn how to apply what you've, you've learned um a more outside the sphere rather than inside the sphere of SNC. yeah great advice and then uh a kind of new question i'm going to bring in um to the podcast is uh is, <laughs> What should I have asked you that I haven't? Is there anything you you um, you think would be important information to get out there? Um, you got me here. What you should have asked? Um, I don't know. Actually, you've asked that, that's, that's some decent questions. Um, put me on the spot here. <laughs> I don't know. Like, um, you know, where do I, where do I see the the future of strength and conditioning you know where's it gonna where's it gonna land I mean I think what I went through and as a as a SNC coach performance manager is different than maybe what coaches are going through now the industry was different we we had to do everything you know my first job my first real job I was an assistant manager I had to do the washing I did the kit I did everything mm. where coaches these days they probably come in and they coach and I guess maybe why we, I was able to be a performance manager is I, I, I knew an, a lot of things. Some you know, jack, of, you know, jack of all trades, master of none. So probably the future of this CEO I would have liked to, to have discussed, you know, because I think it's very different because it's difficult as a coach going into a team now as a, as a strength coach. You get hired as a strength coach or a speed coach to develop other skills. So how do you develop skills as a, as a rehab coach? How do you learn to return a, a, a player to play? How do you um, understand how to bring an RPE? How do you understand how to work on the sports science side? How do you split GPS? You know, so some of the skills that I learned just because I had to, we had to do everything and these things were new probably is missing and it's the teams which can facilitate 
that that I guess the rotation of their of their performance team. You know, um, I think the ones are going to survive, and the ones are going to be successful. You know, where coaches can be rehab coach, a strength coach, they can take, you know, they can give dietary advice, they can take skin folds, they can do a number of things. Those things may be missing these days. Yeah, it's. Definitely seems to be more of a trend of having you know more specialist coaches in in different areas. Um, but then, like you say, also some some teams have have rotated through or given you know given responsibility for different aspects over time, so everyone gets that kind of you know exposure to it and experience of it. Um, so it's yeah, definitely yeah. definitely worth worth uh, considering. But and also, I guess perhaps moving down the line if you've got people who are very specialist is it then harder to to go into a performance manager role because they haven't got that that overall jack of all trades if you know what i mean so it's yeah it could yeah, it's, it's it's difficult right yeah. like and the hard and the hard thing is a as a manager you've got you've got a coach you know like i employed some smart people you know smarter than me you know in, in jobs and and they're good at what they do so it's hard to take someone out of a role where they're really strong into a different role but that's that's again another skill as a coach as a manager how you facilitate your team how you how you bring a team on what you do how you help facilitate learning and that's one thing going back to to craig white it's one thing he was so so good at and i'll, and I'll never forget how he helped me in that regard how he helped us facilitate learning, how he brought us on from an industry where in New Zealand where it was maybe a little bit closed shop around you didn't, people didn't talk about their philosophies, talk about what they did because there was fear that someone was going to take your job. And I walked into an environment where there was just absolute clarity in terms of what we're doing, why we're doing it, and how we're doing it. And it was like, this is amazing. And I tried to take that approach um, in the years later with my, with my teams. So... Um, so, yeah. yeah, that's interesting. Uh, and lastly, uh, John, where can people learn more about you? Uh, um, I'm not really a social media guy. Like, um, uh, if, they, if they look at my Twitter and, and Instagram, they'll probably just see photos of food and my kids. <laughs> you know, like I, I love to talk to people, and if they want to learn about me, pick up the phone, give me a call. Like, I genuinely, I'd like to, I'll talk to anyone. Um, and you know, especially if they're a young coach and want to know anything, drop me an email, give me a call. You know, again, as I said, I might not answer the first time, but you call back, I'll pick the phone up. Um, so if you want to know more about me, give me a call. Um, I'm pretty non-existent on social media. Maybe maybe LinkedIn is a bit there, but not much. Okay, and yeah, that, that's that's great. And um, and obviously, thank you for speaking to us and taking the time to talk about your your philosophy and your career. No worries. If I can help someone out there somewhere, that'd be great. That's awesome. Cheers, John. Great stuff. Yes, thank you, John, uh, for taking the time to talk to us. Um, some great insights and information there. So all the best for the future. Um, in the meantime, guys, please subscribe to us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, Spotify, Amazon, and whatever other apps you've got for podcasts. And, of course, give us a five-star review. Uh, and also check us out at rugbyrenegade.com. We've just launched a new website, so uh, tons of stuff going on there, some new functionality uh, for the membership program, and of course some discounts and um, deals with new partners and stuff. We're always trying to add stuff um, to give you guys more value to improve your performance for rugby. So check it out, and of course stay tuned for more podcasts. 
Thanks for listening to the Rugby Renegade Podcast. For more quality rugby strength and conditioning information, check us out at RugbyRenegade.com. Rugby Renegade, building machines.